Content warning. Transhumanism, ableism, race bending, and people missing the point of cool robots. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. Drug hit him like an express train, a white-hot column of light mounting his spine in the region of his prostate, illuminating the sutures of his skull with x-rays of short-circuited sexual energy. His teeth sang in their individual sockets, each one pitch-perfect and clear as ethanol. His bones beneath the hazy envelope of flesh were chromed and polished, the joints lubricated with a film of silicone. Sandstorms raged across the scoured floor of his skull, generating waves of high, thin static that broke between his eyes, spheres of purest crystal, expanding. Cyberpunk is one of the defining subgenres of science fiction, beloved of Hollywood and haunting the dreams of Silicon Valley weirdos for decades now. Today we're looking at where it all started, uh, just about, the novel Neuromancer by William Gibson. I'm Philip Rice, and with me as always is Adam Prosser. And today we have a special guest, Costa... Uh, Kutsutis. Hi, Costa. Oh, hi. Yes, hello. And hi. Yes, welcome to What Mad Universe. We will be back in a moment. Uh, this is What Mad Universe. Um, we are uh, looking today at the novel uh, Neuromancer by William Gibson and maybe more collectively the genre of cyberpunk. This is something we really wanted to look at. Uh, because it's uh, it's obviously pivotal to science fiction, uh, but we also wanted it to lead into another discussion of other things that we were going to talk about throughout the season, uh, particularly steampunk. Um, but we figured we had we should start with cyberpunk. So um, I very deliberately did not read uh, the novel again. I, I I read it when I was a teenager. I did not read it again for this show because I wanted uh, Philip to kind of lead the the way. So Philip has read. Uh, neuromancer what do you think of it philip um well uh i mean it was very good i mean it, it has its reputation for a reason um i i found myself getting lost in a lot of the language you know it was just like great turns turns of phrases and whatnot and this is probably a me problem but i, I sort of lost the plot at several points um a bit bit hard to to follow overall um i i figured it out eventually like you put two and two together but i kept I uh, kept getting lost. I think a, a reread would would suit this well for me. Hmm. Well, um, what if you I, had? I, I, yeah, I I actually had the same problem with Illuminatus. The first time I read it, I I was completely confused, um, plot wise. Uh, but on a reread, I understood it a lot better. So, um, again, so, it's so probably what, a me problem. Yeah. Sorry, what were you saying there, Acosta? Oh, I wasn't gonna. I didn't say anything. I just laughed heartily. Although I think it's funny you mentioned steampunk because like a foot over to my left I also have quote unquote the first steampunk novel. Yes. I have The Difference Engine by William Gibson and Bruce Sterling. <laughs> oh yes, we are going to t well in fact we're going to do a different show on The Difference Engine. So that was this is kind of laying the groundwork for that in a way. Um, but yes, that's that is something we wanted to talk about as well. But first, uh, we wanted to talk about Neuromancer, and by a great stroke of coincidence, we have someone here, uh, Costa, who had actually written a master's. Is it was it a master's thesis on Neuromancer? Yeah, I wrote my master's thesis on. Hold on, I actually have it in front of me. Let me read the, the full title. <laughs> Because I was of the last generation that printed out your master's thesis <laughs> theses. Uh, so it's William Gibson's Sprawl is a background for science fiction criticism. It is a thematic and stylistic 
analysis and interpretation of Neuromancer and the two follow-up novels. Very cool. Yeah, that's on, that just uh, that's that's a that's a great uh, stroke of luck. We're glad to really glad to have you here, Costa. Um, thanks for for coming. Um, glad to be here. <laughs> Excellent. Definitely a break from uh, definitely a break from uh, my my work. Yes. I'm teaching a college professor. Yeah. Right. Teaching more people to write the same master's thesis. <laughs> similar master's thesis. Yes, exactly. Um, Basically. Well, Costa, what I wanted to start by asking was, um, so is this truly the first cyberpunk story? Or would you say Gibson's, I guess Burning Chrome would be like predated because that's a short story he wrote. But is that the first cyberpunk story? So yeah, uh, Gibson as well as sort of you know uh, wrote a bunch of short stories beforehand. Uh, Bruce Bethke actually quote unquote created the term uh, cyberspace in the 1980s. So I, for all intents and purposes, Gibson's short stories are the first quote unquote cyberpunk, and this is the first cyberpunk novel that sets the stage aesthetically for what we sort of consider the look and feel of, of cyberpunk fiction. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, that I, it's clearly, you know, obviously one of the seminal books. I just, I was sort of, I, I didn't know if maybe uh, there was some lesser known person who'd kind of snuck in before Gibson and, <laughs> and he'd cl not claim the credit or whatever. I, again, not to say this isn't a seminal book, but I just wanted to make sure there wasn't like some other outlier before this. Um, I'll be honest, off the top of my head, I cannot remember any sort of like dates, but I do know that when Gibson lived, moved to Canada in the late 70s, early 80s, he was essentially part of like a counterculture writing scene, you know, that and, and that's where stuff like him and Sterling and uh, Neil Stevenson came from and a variety of other authors as well. And they essentially laid the groundwork. And while some of their work might have actually technically been published first, um, I said aesthetically because, you know, Gibson's Gibson's cyberpunk of the 80s is the visual sort of idea that we have, right, of like the hyper, uh, the sort of like the hyper huge buildings, the mega corporations, the very sort of Asiatic forward influence because it's the 80s. So we're seeing like the peak of, of Japanese economic superiority going on in the United States and in the West, in the West in general. So th that's why a lot of people tend to lean towards Neuromancer as like, quote unquote, the first cyberpunk story. Right. Because I was actually reading that um, Gibson apparently, while he was writing Neuromancer, again, he published Burning Chrome and I believe Johnny Mnemonic and a couple stories before that. He was tapped to write a novel. He was like halfway through writing Neuromancer and then Blade Runner came out and he apparently yeah. panicked because he thought like, oh my God, everyone's going to think I'm just ripping off Blade Runner basically. <laughs> Yeah, I've heard that one too. <laughs> Which is, but I mean, it's it's clearly it was something that was in the water, so to speak. But it, it's just, I, I bring all this up because it's rare that you can really point to someone and just say, oh yeah, they're the, the, the they're the absolutely seminal beginning of the, the whole genre. Uh, we've already done a few uh, episodes about uh, earlier books that definitely had a cyberpunk feel to them, even though they wouldn't probably be qualified as cyberpunk, like um, The Star's My Destination, for instance, sometimes gets uh, tagged that way. Uh, are you familiar with that one? Uh, no, I'm not, actually. Um, although I did reference a lot when I was in grad school, Philip K. Dick, um, in particular, uh, Three Stigmata and Ubik, mm, to me, right. were very much like laying down that stream of consciousness style in a vaguely science fiction setting. Although Gibson drew heavily more from... Um, William S. Burroughs and the Beats, right? Really, for that type of stylistic structural thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then uh, Phil, what else was there? Uh, oh, yeah. Well, um, uh, you mentioned Stars My Destination, uh, and that uh, I think specifically uh, the way um, Gully Foyle gets his body uh, augmented with uh, cybernetic parts and gets superpowers, basically. Um, but also, uh, you know, the the whole thing about how teleportation changes uh, culture and, you know, the, the elites being literally royal families, like, named after, you know, large companies. Like, I'm from yeah. the House of McDonald's or something like that. Right. Um, uh, but um, uh, we also did uh, uh, Nova uh, by, um, oh, God. Samuel Delaney. Yeah, yeah Samuel R. Delaney, uh, which, of course, had uh, Cyborg, um, you know, again, um, augmented people who could hook themselves directly into into machines to control them though that's 
sort of a um, more of a, a background detail than a what the book's about. But um, uh, I think yeah. I've read that. Yeah, Samuel yeah, yeah, Delaney's really good. Yeah, yeah, uh, he's uh, you know that Star Trek episode where uh, um, uh, Cisco is uh, yeah Deep Space Nine where Cisco is a sci-fi writer in the fifties. That's sort of be- loosely based on Delaney. Oh, I will be completely honest. I am not a Star Trek fan. <laughs> oh, like, get out! No, just kidding. Fair. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I literally no, have a podcast against Star Trek. I'm just joking. No, it's fine. <laughs> um, um, uh, yeah, uh, and uh, actually in the uh, the forward uh, to the uh, edition I had, um, uh, Gibson actually references Bester as one of one of his influences. Um so um, that right. stars my destination, um, which makes sense. Yeah, Bester's two works both have a cyberpunk feel. I would argue uh, uh, there's also J.G. Ballard, uh, and we did do... Uh, um, Ballard's uh, a big early proto-cyberpunk guy, yeah. Yeah, and I think Gibson's, again, He's I think he specifically mentioned Ballard as, a, as an influence. And as I, I think he specifically said Ballard was the one he wanted to be, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but yeah, it's I, I think... Um, the whole new wave of science fiction, which was technically placed in the 60s, although Bester is late 50s, and I think Ballard got started in the 50s as well, um, that really feels like it was setting the stage for cyberpunk. It's not specifically cyberpunk, but when you go back and read a lot of it, it really feels cyberpunky. And I think the thing that they had in common is, my, my understanding is Gibson was, uh, again, I'm my quote, the quote I remember uh, understanding from Gibson is he had an aesthetic repulsion towards science fiction as it was in the late 70s, early 80s. And, yeah, um, yeah. sorry. He used, to be a, he used to be a kid who I know who read a lot of science fiction, but then when he got older, it was very much no. He, he moved away from it more towards, like, obscure literary, not obscure, but, like, literary fiction, right? Yeah. So his science fiction is not very 60s science fiction-y. Yeah. Well, he, he, he wrote um, a, a short story. I'm not, I can't remember if it was before some of these or after, but he wrote one called The Gernsback Continuum. Uh, do you remember what year that was, Costa? The Gernsback Continuum? No. Um... Because that was literally a reaction to uh, science fiction as he perceived that... it, and he was very much categorizing it as um, the uh, the 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 like the the basically the John W. Campbell era of science fiction and his legacy that echoed down through the decades. Um, I've read a few of his short stories, but I cannot, off the top of my head, recall that one. Um, yeah, I can't. I can't remember, but I do know that he's talked pretty openly about how that that era of science fiction was just not not his thing. Once he got older, mm-hmm. you know, and and it's completely understandable when you really sort of look at it. I was first exposed to Neuromancer in graduate school in a science fiction class I took, and we read Neuromancer, which completely changed my life. We read it back to back with. Um, some British 70s science fiction novel that I just did not like and I do not remember. And it was very much in the vein of like Arthur C. Clarke and uh, the, the Star Trek-esque thing of like high mm. philosophical issues couched in this sort of far-flung future world. But, you know, to me, I grew up in, in punk rock and heavy metal and so obviously cyberpunk's high-tech, low-life thing appealed to me a lot more. And I also like... I grew up on a lot of anime, so <laughs> I was exposed to science fiction. I was exposed to cyberpunk before I really knew what cyberpunk was. I remember being like 11 years old and discovering Akira and Ghost in the Shell. I actually referenced Ghost in the Shell and Masamune Shiro a lot in my master's thesis. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, that kind of science fiction, once I hit a certain age, had did nothing to me really. right? And I had very little interest in... I also kind of have very little interest in the beats. So (laughs) oddly enough, despite the fact that I like Gibson a lot, I haven't read a huge ton of his influences. Hmm. Um, Well, speaking of anime, Phil, did you want to mention um, what the... Yeah, I heard that laugh. The, uh, yeah, the 10,000 days, uh, 10 billion days thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, Another uh, precursor to a lot of this is uh, 10 billion days and 100 billion nights by uh, uh, Ryo Mitsutsi. Mitsuse. Um, uh, okay. Yeah, it, it's a book from the uh, the 60s, was it? Um, yeah, mid-60s, late 60s. Yeah. 
which uh, uh, involves in the climax uh, the uh, ruins of New Tokyo and the uh, cyborg uh, bodies of Buddha and Jesus duking it out for the uh, soul of uh, the universe. Okay, I'm going to have to bug you guys for the full name and title of that again later. Cause it, that it's 100% up my alley. Yeah, yeah, it's wild. It's and, and I've been trying to read. I've been trying to read more Japanese prose the past couple of years. I have, uh, I have the the Honjin Murders, which is like a detective novel that's famous in Japan, sitting on the bookshelf waiting to get read. Uh, I keep telling myself to try and get more into Haruki Murakami's, but it just has not happened yet. I have too much of a to read pile and too many papers to grade. Yeah, right. Yeah, no. What, what was what we found amazing about this was just that it was. It, it felt like the precursor to anime. It's a novel, but it feels like, you know, every anime uh, creator ever read it and went, oh, or at least every science fiction anime creator uh, was was uh, enraptured by this. Uh, you add this to Neuromancer and you see the basis of, you know, most of the sci-fi anime that's out there. It seems to have been inspired by it one way or another. Obviously, but like Ghost in the Shell being the big one. Uh, but yeah, and Akira and... and um, and all that stuff. Um, it, it, it's it, it's it's really interesting that that's that that's there. But um, it, it is interesting. Like, what do you, do you think uh, that? Like, I, obviously, you know, Japan Japan had Western influences, but like, did, do you think anime like anime creators were reading Neuromancer and were reading like these 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 books? Or oh, absolutely. It, yeah, I, I've I just yesterday. Um, cause I just, ideally sometimes we'll put videos up on while I'm doing work and I'm grading papers yesterday and I put a video up yesterday and it was Gibson being, inter Gibson being interviewed by somebody at Sony who mentioned how he and his friends in the eighties, like read all of Neuromancer and, you know, obviously it was like a corporate video. So they were like, oh, it inspired us to make all this technology, you know, which runs completely counter to the cyberpunk idea of reflections of modernity as opposed to, um, you know, being oracular. Um, and Gibson's just like, oh, that's very nice. Cause you know, he, you watch any videos or interviews with him. He's just this very nice, slow, soft-spoken man. Um, and, uh, um, but I, I absolutely believe so, I, you know, because if you look at like, cause the reason, so like the reason I like Mas uh, Shiro's work and I like Ghost in the Shell so much, and I watched a ton of it too while it while I was working on on my thesis is um, because it's essentially like a, a reflection of really boring modern day problems, right? It has a lot to do with uh, you know government oversight and really boring drab things, and and the the that cyberpunk high tech low life thing just always comes to mind. Right, like that's the first thing I always think about, and I always think too about that Gibson quote from let's see, two thousand and sorry, I have notes actually, um, two thousand two, two thousand three, where he said the future is already here; it's just not evenly distributed. Right. Yeah. Which, yeah, which is perfect, right? Because you look at, you know, and you look at so for example, like Japan, and I've been thinking about this a lot this past year because I was in Germany and they socially did this a lot after World War II and, and um, then the Cold War, this idea of, like, you have to really take a good long look at yourself as a nation and undergo, dra undergo drastic change that, start, that appears physical but is actually sort of deeply rooted in a social sense as well. Um, and that shows in a lot of, like, post-war and then post-Cold War anime where Japan was changing and I think cyberpunk really helped reflect that. I'm by no means an expert on sort of like Japanese social culture, Asian social culture, Pacific Islander social culture. But that's just this is just through my own observations of reading a lot of this stuff. And I still try and follow like technology and, and you know, watch a lot of anime. <laughs> uh, like, a, you know, uh, yeah. what's it called? Akira is absolutely like a, re a cyberpunk reflection of what could have happened after world war two, you know, ghost in the shell is absolutely a cyberpunk look at Japan. Um, after like the late seventies, early eighties economic boom, right? Like absolutely. And all of that came from cyberpunk, which is a reflection of the 1980s American economy, like westernized American economic boom, right? Wall street is huge. Greed is good. And the idea that all of a sudden the cycle of up and down 
is no longer happening. We're just going up and up and up, but at what cost? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I just, uh, in the uh, uh, afterward to the uh, edition that I have of Neuromancer, uh, the, the writer mentions that uh, Gibson, uh, about a decade earlier, and I think uh, the afterward was written in the 90s, uh, visited Japan for the first time and saw the word uh, in a shop window, the word cyberpunk on a shirt, and was very uh, sort of bemused by it. I've heard that. Uh, I've heard that anecdote. My edition of Neuromancer, which I've hung on to since graduate school, does not have an afterword because it's from 19... Holy cow. This edition's from 1984. Mm. <laughs> it's got a quote from the Village Voice on the front. <laughs> yeah, I've... I've um, I... Some of my Gibson books I had to I had to replace after a move where I lost a lot of books, but the Neuromancer I kept. <laughs> it's right here next to me. I read it. I read a, a bunch of Gibson every year, like yearly. I'm a big rereader. Yeah, um, he has had a huge influence on me that I just could never really express. I can't really fully begin to express. Yeah, clearly, uh, Phil. I I actually wanted to ask. So having read read Neuromancer. Uh, so Costa's told us uh, this stuff. What what was it? What did you sort of take away from it? Like, what was the thing that really, you know, you thought was really cool, or that you went, "Oh yeah, I see. Oh, that's where everyone got that from," or whatever. Uh, well, definitely, uh, as you mentioned, the aesthetics. Like, that's a big part of it. Like a lot of these ideas, as we've discussed, uh, you know, body augmentation or um, even virtual reality and uh, world being a simulation or whatever. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, uh, I'd seen like a, a movie, a German movie from the seventies called World on a Wire. Uh, I've heard by, of that uh, film. Yeah, uh, by um, uh, R. W. Uh, Rain or Fassbender, Rainier Werner Fassbender. Um, it's uh, uh, sort of a I think it was a TV special in in Germany from seventy uh, three, um, and it's basically the Matrix without the action scenes. Uh, and without the aesthetics. So, yeah, like a lot of these ideas had been sort of discussed, and I believe this was based on a science fiction novel as well. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, Simulacron uh, 3 by Daniel F. I'm not going to be able to pronounce this name. Galway, I think. I don't know. Um, but, um, uh, but what uh, Neuromancer seemed to uh, really instill is, is this... I don't know. It's just very cool. Um, there's just yeah. this um, this look described to everything, um, um, or or at least um, a feel that you can sort of uh, visualize in a, in a in very specific ways. And it may be because we've seen so much cyberpunk since then, but like you can instantly picture most of this stuff. And it's um, uh, I also was struck by how uh, forward-thinking a lot of it is in terms of technology. Obviously, uh, as is often mentioned, there's a row of uh, pay phones at one point, so you know he couldn't predict everything. Uh, and he, he mentions in the uh, forward that, uh, yeah, he didn't uh, see he, cell phones coming. I've heard, <laughs> um, yeah, I've heard that quote too. I love yeah. that. I love that uh, that payphone scene. Actually, I really like it. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a cool thing because the uh, the AI is is calling him uh, and like calls him on each phone as, it, as he passes it by, um, yeah. which is a, a, a cool image. Uh, but, um, uh, and, and I think, uh, I haven't seen this discussed, but the thing that dates it most for me is the casual space travel, because uh, now that we live in a weird cyberpunk future uh, in everything but aesthetics, uh, <laughs> we don't, I mean, I, yeah, you have like Bezos and, um, Musk uh, going to space, but there's not like the casual, you know, space stations and stuff. It's just a bunch of rich weirdos, which I guess is cyberpunk. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, you know, it's it's cut off for everybody, but a couple rich weirdos. But uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, cyberpunk promised us a, a depressing future, but one that at least looked cool, and I feel a little let down. <laughs> It, uh, I was going to say, um, uh, the writer Laura Hudson on Twitter, I saw her talking about once how um, she, the thing that really always disappointed her about technolo technology and aesthetics is how in the 80s we, you know, as personal technology 
probably arguably influenced by books and movies and stuff that came out of like science fiction and cyberpunk. You know, we had the MacBooks, the Macs that had like that were clear with all the colors and we had neon everywhere and cyberpunk is very much like a neon lived in world, right? That's the wor- that's the aesthetic of the future we were promised and instead everything looks like a goddamn iPhone. <laughs> yep. I mean and the iPhone prob- the iPhone at one point was kind of a neat new aesthetic, but it got that out was of hand. the only aesthetic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that actually raises an is- an, an interesting point uh, that I actually wanted to ask because um, there's a question I've heard somebody uh, uh, mention. Cyberpunk has been a bit of a topic of discussion recently because there was a game called Cyberpunk. That was, I think, one of the big reasons. Um, but um, there's there's a, there's been a bit of a discussion, and some people have argued that. Uh, it is by definition kind of a retro sci-fi genre that you can't really do cyberpunk anymore because it was based in the 80s. Um, I'm not sure I agree with that, but I do kind of see where they're coming from. Um, What do you think, Costa? Okay, so I agree, right? Because cyberpunk, the aesthetic as we know it, is very much an aesthetic reflecting, you know, the, the predicted nature and predicted look from the 1980s, right? So while cyberpunk as a genre still absolutely exists, the vision that we have of cyberpunk is very, very retro, right? Like, um, so I wrote this thing after I watched uh, Blade Runner 2049 because immediately after that, my wife and I jumped into watching um, the first season of Altered Carbon on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And, like, I really liked um, Blade Runner 2049, uh, a lot, and that's a really, you know, like, great, great film, and it looks amazing. Altered Carbon looks like Neuromancer, right? Everything's bright and big and neon and, like, high techy and, like, vaguely fetishizing sort of certain things because arguably a lot of cyberpunk sort of picks up on the weird bits of of heavy sexual fetishization um, of, of, like, Asian culture. Right, which is very much a reflection of that fear in the 80s of like, oh my god, Japan is going to dominate the economy and it's going to dominate everything. Um, So like, to me, a game like Cyberpunk 2077, which we had here in the household and and played for like 20 minutes, I was like, "This, this is a retro game, this is a retro look. Because cyberpunk is still incredibly active and still exists. There, you know, there's uh, like writers like Tim Mahan, whose book uh, Infinite Detail is arguably very cyberpunk about what happens if the internet gets turned off. I just literally saw a list of uh, of all of like uh, Bangladeshi and Indian authors writing science fiction, all of the concepts of which sound amazing and all of which sound incredibly cyberpunk. Right, as long as you're writing about socioeconomic inequity, as long as you're writing about the future, not that far from now, and as long as you're keeping the plots not too crazy and out there, it's going to be cyberpunk. Because at the heart of it, Neuromancer is a heist film, right? It's it's about a bunch of crooks who get brought together for a heist. Except the heist is organized, spoiler alert, by an artificial intelligence. And everybody, and it takes place in the future and, and stuff like that. But I mean, it's a heist, right? I have dozens of heist books around here from the 50s and 60s. They're not that different when you think about it. So I do agree with the idea that cyberpunk in a game like Cyberpunk 2077 is a deliberately retro thing. And you can't really go, like, you can't look at something like that and be like, yeah, that's the future. Because that's not what the future is going to look like. Because that's not what we look like now anymore. That aesthetic is gone. Right, it's more than, but it's more than just aesthetic because the punk aspect of the name of it implies counterculture. It implies pushing back against authority. It implies real sort of like anti-authoritarian narratives and socioeconomic beliefs, arguably even spiritual beliefs. Um, you know, I would argue that. Uh, oh, I'm drawing a blank on anything new. Well, I've been so involved in like work it's just not coming to me but like i would say yeah it's kind of retro but cyberpunk as a concept still exists it just doesn't look or like what we think it does yeah i i think you i think you more or less uh put your finger on it because it's like the yeah the aesthetics of it the are, are blade runner essentially uh and that's yeah. or you know to a certain extent the matrix something like that but that's like yeah that's that's kind of 
that's going to be retro. It's actually significant. We 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 just rewatched The Matrix in our movie club recently, and like literally the, in 1999, that movie was still going out of its way to have somewhat retro technological aesthetics. Like they go, it's kind of almost a joke that in The Matrix they go in, they dial in on like a rotary phone and stuff, something like that. Like that, like that's kind of a goof because it's a fake reality. They can play around with it in that way. Um, so I actually that, really like that. I like the lived-in aspect of older technology like that, which is yeah. why I like Neuromancer, because it feels very lived-in. Yeah. Yeah, I think Neuromancer was... Like, Cyberpunk, one of its things is to view technology as, well, what if it was just there and taken for granted? Like, science fiction, I'm not going to say inevitably up to that point, always dealt with science, uh, with technology and, and big sci-fi concepts as, like, Here's a crazy new thing. Where Cyberpunk dealt more with like, okay, this thing is here, it's been here for a while, and people are dealing with it. And it's not the, as you say, it's about economic uh, inequality, so it's about the random little people, and even the people who, are, yeah. who don't quite fit, you know, they, they fall through the cracks of society. How is the technology trickling down and impacting them? Sometimes they get access to cool technology, but it's in weird, you know, illicit... Uh, non-illegal ways, or it's in it's in ways that weren't intended. Like they, you know, there's there's maybe there's something that was intended as public services, like said payphones, but they're not um, they're not functioning the way they're supposed to. There's sort of crime zones and and all that kind of stuff, and it, it, that actually ties into something about cyberpunk that like it doesn't have to be about the technology. It can often just be about the culture of the future that's that's the, I, i'd almost say that's a big portion of cyberpunk like it has to be about what is the what how are people you know building the culture in the future even if they don't actively uh rather than you know what kind of cool crazy new technology which is predicted to be when you know what the ad people tell us it's going to be but then you know how it's actually used is different and cyberpunk's trying to look at how it's actually used and how people you know, how how cultures blossom in the cracks, as it were. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Um, that that little bit in the beginning of Neuromancer, let me actually find it, where they describe uh, Chiba, Night City. Uh, hold it, go. Um, so Gibson writes, In Japan, he'd known with a clench and absolute certainty he'd find his cure in Chiba, either in a registered clinic or in the shadowland of black medicine. Synonymous with implants, nerve splicing, and microbionics, Chiba was a magnet for the, uh, for the sprawls techno-criminal subcultures. Uh, right, like... The, these places, you know, like in here, Gibson is explicitly just being like, yeah, high-tech stuff leaks out all the time, and it's usually on purpose to, to see whether or not it works before the rich actually start to use it. Which, as I watched video footage earlier today of Teslas uh, driving off the freeway into uh, into ditches on the side of the road, <laughs> just no, for no real reason, right? Like, no connection there at all. <laughs> yeah. Oh, an, well, absolute I- di- an absolute dimwit like Elon Musk you know, would put unfinished cars out there just to, you know, because it doesn't feel like doing the actual work to get them to, to whatever, be like, oh, well, we'll just have suckers, you know, pay for, you know, pay for it essentially. Although the Tesla being very expensive, it it, it is being marketed to rich people. In fact, that was one of the big criticisms of Tesla is that it's, you know, it's not going to be revolutionized, you know, energy efficient car or or, uh, renewably powered cars because, only rich people can afford it right like whereas like the, the first teslas there i remember like i feel like i watched an episode of that british show top gear and they had an early tesla and the thing like exploded or something it like ran out of juice like 20 minutes in <laughs> and then the engines over like the batteries in the back overheated and i'm like this is what you get when you pay for stuff with uh you know oh my god apartheid blood diamonds or whatever <laughs> it is oh but, emeralds Emeralds. Emeralds, sorry. <laughs> the chaos emeralds. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. Um, yeah, yeah. It was uh, his family owned a emerald mine in South a- in apartheid South Africa. For those that that's don't know, that's that's what's paying for all those hair plugs. <laughs> oh, God. Um, <laughs> Which whatever, but just like God, what a douche. Oh yeah. Anyway. And yeah. yet, these are the people who are reading cyberpunk and going yeah that's so cool like it, clearly people like bezos and and musk and uh, like uh, 
maybe Zuckerberg to an extent. I don't know if he's as big a sci-fi nerd, but they're they're like they they are trying to like build the future that they've read in science fiction and. You, you These know, people as, don't read. Don't fool yourself. I, they do, though. You think they read? Like, you think they read anything other than like some sort of like nonfiction? Ten ways to be a more efficient manager. Well, Bezos like is Bezos is a big fan of the the culture novels, which blows my mind. Like that's he said that, and I mean, I that's, don't believe that. Well, that's I, a lie. That's Somebody a, told him to say that. Maybe that's a deep cut. If he's going to pull a, a and not just say Star Trek or something, but yeah, I don't know. Um, but, like, it, it, the, the crazy thing about that is, like, it, it's that meme with the robot, right? Like, the, which I think initially was about cyberpunk. No, it was about Gundam. That's what it was. It was, like, it was like, war is bad, and it was firing over the guy's head. And he goes, wow, cool robot. The cyberpunk one is, like, you know, systems of capitalism and systems of control are very bad and will never help people no matter how technologically sophisticated they get. And people are like, wow, cool technology. Like, it, that's, yeah. that's what they're seeing and getting taking away from it, I think, unfortunately. <laughs> Actually, with Musk, I think the specific example to point to is the cyber truck, that, that ugly-ass truck that he... he um, had designed. Uh, remember when he took a baseball bat to it, thinking it wouldn't, that the window wouldn't crack, and it just went through, right through the window. Um, um, Meanwhile, if you read uh, Gibson's uh, big end books later, the ones that that he wrote in like two thousand two to two thousand five, the real sort of cars of the future are are basically just like, you know, they look like a, like a Nissan Cilantro or like a, you know, like a. Uh, what I'm trying to think of like a big SUV type car, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's what they look like, and they're just custom made to you know on the inside. That's that's what really counts. He describes one in in uh, uh, Spook Country as an you know it's a quote unquote Cartier tank, which I think about now anytime I get into like a really nice Uber. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's almost it's it's and again it's like we're, we're getting into like. There definitely is a point, like, cyberpunk is definitely cynical about science fiction and cynical about the future, but we're almost getting to a point where, like, now, two decades after that took off, we hit the point where we're like, okay, it's the future, but none of the cool technology, at least, like, cyberpunk at least envisions that all this technology will be out there, and it it does do amazing things, and it does do incredible things, even if they're out of reach for most people, and if you, even if you have to turn to crime to sort of access them. Whereas, now we're in the future of, like, well, the technology's not going to advance at all, and it's all going to be stupid and crappy. And But it, all the satirical aspects of cyberpunk are still at play, and all the sort of, you know, there, there's definitely a sense of... Um, it's not Neuromancer, but in uh, Neil Stevenson's... Um, Snow Crash, he envisions a, a future in which everything is literally just a tiny, isolated little, um, what they're called burb claves. So every, it's like a, a, a whole cluster of mini nations. Uh, and, 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 you know, the people who go in between from one place to another are, are you know, in, in, including at one point uh, a pizza delivery guy. The main character starts as a pizza delivery guy. But it's, it's the idea that it, it's this fracturization and atomization of all these different cultures that are broken down and there's sort of very little oversight holding it together it's kind of libertarianism gone wild i guess uh which is actually i'd say that's a big aspect of cyberpunk as well right it's funny you mentioned uh snow crash i have it sitting on the bookshelf i recently got my hands on it i haven't read it in ages also i was in a bookstore yesterday the day before and there's a new neil stevenson novel out Hmm. About like climate change or something like that. I, I don't know. I didn't get it. I, I was Christmas shopping. Um, I yeah, like the the satire is the point, and of course, satire. The whole point of satire is like the people who you are, are meant to satirize. They never get it right. <laughs> That's why that meme you brought up exists. Right, they're the ones who watch Gundam. You know, like a uh, mobile suit Gundam, for uh, and go, oh, cool robot. Meanwhile, like I watched a ton of Gundam when I was in college and oh my god all of those are just terrible war dramas about like uh you know like extremism and you know militarization and uh like bigotry because you know they're essentially like you know post-human colonists essentially trying to break away from like an oppressive pseudo-fascist military earth government but you know they themselves then become these like hyper stylized (laughs) space fascists and like civilians are just caught in the middle and like but if I told someone that, they'd be like, what? No, I'm not watching that. Yeah, you, 
you don't sell them on the ideas. You sell them on the cool, the cool robots. Yeah, exactly. And then the, 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 then the, of course the, as you say, the, the fallout from that is that people only take away the cool robots and they don't think about <laughs> what right, it's meant which to be is there. like you know the one of the like these sort of problems is is like like a uh, somebody I, I referenced in my thesis, uh, Catherine Lindbergh, wrote about how like cyberpunk for all its attempts at sort of doing whatever is still kind of doomed because it's limited you know, in, in certain extent, a, by sort of patriarchy, by capitalism and, and, and sort of like Westernization. Right. And, and I think the fact, which is nowhere near the fault of, of Gibson and Neuromancer, but it's still like a valid criticism. And I think some of the fact, the fact that some of those limitations are so heavily tied to aesthetics, right? Like you watch, like you watch Altered Carbon or you watch, um, what was it? Some I watched like Blade I don't know Runner. some kind of Blade Runner and right and you know there's still like or oh Firefly which I hate 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 right is a future supposedly a future where like that Asiatic you know Uber influence took over and and re- supplanted Westernization and yet there's only like there's no, where are all the Asian people in that show yeah. right. Like, right, the space confederates who swear in Chinese, there is not a single Asian Pacific Islander that I remember watching that show. I think some extras, but that's about it, yeah. Oh, the extras, right. Yeah. Heaven for I actually, I had, the extras. I had the theory that River and Simon were written as Asian, and for some reason you decided to cast white people. Yeah, their name like, is Tam. Their last name is Tam. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, anyway, I don't know what was going on. Is that their name? I don't remember a lot about that show. Oh, uh, Um, speaking of uh, uh, George Sweeten, something uh, in uh, Neuromancer, the the sex workers that have a a chip that sort of shuts off their brain. The cutout chip, yeah. Yeah, the cutout chip that has them um, so they aren't sort of mentally present while they're they're doing what they're doing. um, So they can just uh, get the money and just sort of blackout for a bit um isn't that the premise of dollhouse uh, is that a is that a, a wheaton thing yeah not, that show not short. precisely uh, okay I, I never actually watched it but i thought that was the, yeah i may i may be the i i know i agree with all the problems with joss whedon i still kind of like some of his stuff but uh like dollhouse definitely has interesting ideas and stuff but it's a bit of a mess of a show uh, no, it's about rewriting your personality and memories, basically, as they're to be oh. programmable uh, as needed for things. That's like... more of a that's more of a Masamune Shiro uh, Ghost in the Shell thing, where right. it's literally a crime worse than murder to to hack people's me- you know brains and essentially alter their memories, which is something that is like in the main storyline of like the manga and the movie and like the first arc of the show, right? Because like. There, it's kind of ironically almost like us, right? Like people have cyber brains that allow them to connect to the internet. It's basically like an iPhone in your head. But hacking that cyber brain is, you know, an incre- incredibly volatile thing. It's, you know, it's sexual assault, for lack of a better term. Um, you know, the, the, the thing with Molly, because it's, you know, Molly Millions, you know, who described she used to be the quote-unquote, like the, the meat pu- not a meat puppet, but it was like a, the... I forgot the name of it, that particular type of, of sex worker establishment where she, you know, worked to make the money for her implants before she becomes a street samurai is like such a, when you think about it, it's like such a woof issue, right? Like the idea that you can just literally turn off somebody's consciousness for extended periods of time. And it's like a blink and it just happens in, um, uh, which one is it? In Mona Lisa Overdrive, the third sprawl book, there's a guy who went to a, a who's a, an ex-con, and they did a similar thing to him in prison, where he was chemi- like his memory was chemically altered to only give him short-term memories, so his whole prison sentence is forgotten, right? But it permanently traumatized his memory, and he constantly right. sort of short circuits, uh, like. Like, these are some incredible, like, and horrifying implications that just sort of dance in the background, which I think is the thing a lot of people don't really take into account when they try and do cyberpunk, because they tend to want to be like, look at this cool future thing, look at this cool sci-fi thing. Um, 
right? When, like, in fact, one of the, the, the main sort of, like, like, the main issues of, of Neuromancer is that, A, like I mentioned before, A, it's, it's a crime novel at its heart, but also, B, it's very much a highly existential story, right? Case suffers existential, you know, pangs of, like, of what good is he when he's no longer able to access the net, um, Molly seems to be almost like cynically sure of herself in existence. Case, I'm mean, not case. Corto, uh, Cordo, the guy who you know sort of hired them, is is like a puppet, right? He has no sense of self and is almost oblivious to it. They talk about how you know when he's not in use, he just sits in the dark, right? He's like a puppet, and and you know, Neuromancer itself is is the AI that they end up working for is not even a whole consciousness or a whole existence. It's two separate selves. Right, which is like a clear realization by the people who manage AIs of the da- the real danger there. And one of those selves, uh, Wintermute, um, can't actually form a personality as such, and he has to use. No, it has no sense of self. Yeah, it is only purpose. Neuromancer is self. Wintermute is purpose. Yeah, um, and uh, so Wintermute, in order to communicate with uh, regular people, has to sort of adopt uh, an existing personality um, oh, in order the, to the just fit. talk. Yeah, it's cool. The Finn, every time Wintermute is the... The Finn is one of my favorite characters of the Sprawl trilogy because he's just a mean old grouch, and that's me. <laughs> um, so when Wintermute speaks as the Finn, I love it. <laughs> oh, and of course, there's the existential trauma of, of um, you know, the Dixie Flatline, right? This, you know, the, the hardwired uh, pseudo-AI, you know, like hard drive, the memories of Case's, uh, of Case's mentor. You know, who's, you know, at the end of it is essentially like, like begging to be erased, right? This sort of pseudo existence that he lives in as a prison. Yeah, that's um, highly, highly existential. Cyberpunk is highly existential. And so many people forget that. Yeah, you kind of get the, the, the dumber, the dumb, degraded version of that in, from what I understand, I'm not a gamer really, but uh, Cyberpunk 2077, as I understand it, the idea is that the more uh, technology someone has in the body, they'll quote, less, the more their humanity level goes down, essentially. Uh, which is kind of the, yeah, like the, 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 as I say, the degraded version of that idea. But you can see that idea in that. It, it, it does it in a way that's kind of... Uh, does that really happen in that game? Uh, apparently, yes. That's what happens. It's, there's literally, like, a, a humanity meter for all the characters, and it's like, the more of your body you replace with technology, the more your humanity le- meter goes down. I don't know how that affects gameplay. Are you serious? That, that... I mean, like, a, a whole other aspect of Cyberpunk 2 is this idea that, like, to an extent, technology exists to help people who are, you know, sort of, like, physically, like, other, you know, I, people who are physically, you know, not able-bodied, Right. Like in in Shiro's work and you know Ghost in the Shell, prosthetics are expensive, but they're just a thing you can get the doctor to prescribe to you, right? Um, medical scanning technology in the world of Neuromancer is relatively cheap, even at the street level. Finn does it. People, a lot of people have real basic stuff. You know, they make fun of Case for having almost no cybernetic implants in any way, shape, or form. They, they're even cosmetic, right? Like the the the, gang, the Panther moderns utilize it heavily. Um, plastic surgery is done almost anywhere. You know, Molly's quote unquote dentist, her, her, you know, the guy who fixes her up is, you know, in a cheap office somewhere, right? Like this technology is to an extent at that level, not considered high tech and it's everywhere. And the idea that that game ties it to your humanity. Oh my God. (laughs) Well, that was the uh, reason I I heard about it was because of the criticism that it got and people saying that that was a really stupid way of doing it basically. But yeah, maybe it was just stupid because that game is in first person and you can't go into third person. And it's like, what's the point of making your character and getting clothes if I can't (laughs) see them in third person? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. There was also a character in Neuromancer, what a a tan that was made by boosting or mentalin, which yes. Um, uh, interesting implications like so, there. Oh, the, the, the sort of the transhumanism of cyberpunk is such a minefield of both amazing, amazing stuff, but also um, it's a real, real wacky, wacky thing. There is a character in, um, there's a character in uh, Mona Lisa Overdrive who is African-American, but was born white, who has had so much plastic surgery that 
he he basically appears to be to look almost like uh like Grace Jones. Okay. But he admits that he was born white. Oof. Sort of well. a reverse Michael Jackson. Oh yeah. Which is interesting. I mean, like it's kind of interesting to not interesting, but it's interesting that you got we you know we came to the topic of transhumanism and posthumanism, right? Because those are two very different terms, and I think cyberpunk tries to play a lot. Like transhumanism is human augmentation, augmentation and physical changes, whereas posthumanism is essentially the next stage. Gibson is heavily implying that our transhumanist future of of cybernetics and mechanics and prostheses are just that's just humanity continuing onward right like your body is still there even if you put your brain into a computer it's still different right you're still a human in some sort of like spiritual sense um the dixie flatline recognizes that even though he's just memories recorded into like a a hard drive he is essentially still a guy right he's a guy who knows who who wants the the release of death but the the combined AI of Neuromancer and Wintermute, as well as the other AIs that spawn out of it in the later books, they are completely different, non-human, non-human thinking life form. Hmm. Right? Yeah, because their nearest, their nearest, what's it called? Their nearest um, neighbor or the nearest thing that they identify that's that uh, is from like Alpha Centauri. Alpha Centauri. Like, yeah. 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 Aliens. Yeah, yeah. Yep. They just open the door to aliens. That just happens at the end of the novel. I don't know if they ever follow up on that in any of the sequels, but uh, yeah, uh, kind of, sort of, maybe, but not directly. Yeah. Again, like everything, it's happening in like this godlike level that people are, you know, that it, it's about the people who get left behind about <laughs> while all this stuff is happening, and that that's a good re- iteration of that actually, because uh, then now the AIs are sort of above humanity potentially. Um, yeah, there's a great quote um, in in Neuromancer. I'm trying to actually you know what I have it in my in my thesis. I have like a hard bound copy of it because after my after I graduated, my school stopped doing this, so mine is of like the the last generation. So if you go to my alma mater, my my thesis is on file. Oh, okay, here. Uh, Finn is talking to Case, and he says, Motive, the construct said. Real motive problem with an AI. Not human, see? Well, yeah, obviously. Nope, I mean, it's not human, and you can't get a handle on it. Me, I'm not human either, but I respond like one, see? But I ain't likely to write you no poem, if you follow me. Your AI, it just might, but it ain't no way human. Right, that sense, too, that even the people within corporations, even the corporation structures that exist and continue to exist, you know, by just replacing the person at the top. Those are all human thinking structures and human, you know, human belief systems and human behavioral patterns. AIs are true post-humanism in that they react and think and make decisions in ways and, and forms, at least according to Gibson, that we have no way of grasping the full um, sense of. It's like you, like you said, it's very godlike. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do find that interesting that, like, uh, you deal with... Uh, artificial intelligence in a way that isn't just they are you know our friendly human pets and maybe they have some quirks but they're basically human but as opposed to just like well that's kind of terrifying where they could be going from although i i i don't that does predate cyberpunk of course but um you know there's there's uh there it's definitely in there and and that's kind of interesting we've already touched on this but wanted to talk about the sort of uh way uh, uh, different cultures and, and races play into the to the novel uh, obviously uh, it's it's sort of a globe trotting adventure that um, the scene set in Japan and Paris and uh, even um, a, uh, a Rastafarian um, uh, space station um, which is a, a cool thing um, I love them yeah yeah um, but um, I mean some of it's uh, uh, you know, there's a there's a, a Japanese ninja named Hideo. Um, so, I mean, ninjas existed, but you know, the a, a bit of a um, stereotype uh, to a, to a degree, and it's obviously playing into um, thoughts at the time about um, uh, Japanese businesses becoming very successful. Um, maybe sort of a, a second wave of the yellow peril fear. In the early part of the 20th century. 
Um, oh, there was absolutely a, a level. I mean, there was absolutely a level of that in the reaction in the eighties in the United States to you know Japanese economic power. Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. You see it in a lot of sitcoms. They were constantly having you know uh, companies being bought out by Japanese investors or whatnot. The Simpsons actually decided to, that that was cliche and had them uh, the power plant bought by German investors. Um, and Robocop three, Robocop three is the the company gets bought out by the Japanese. Like that was that was that was the big thing everyone was afraid about for ten years was the Japanese were coming to get us economically. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so obvi- obviously that um, uh, so there, there's some uh, uncomfortable. Uh, uh, stuff like like I said, the, you know, one of the major characters being a, a Japanese ninja, but at the same time, uh, it, it presents a world where, you know, it's multicultural, and I think that's, um, I mean, pretty cool. Just uh, um, reflecting the world as it is, even in in this future state, because a lot of science fiction, uh, especially at the time, is just very whitewashed, and if there's uh, a character who's, who's not white or male, it, they're, they're in, they're that way because of a story reason, not just because of that's how people are. Yeah, that's, you know, I, I read this book and I was, so I went to um, Hunter College in Manhattan for grad school and I would be, when I worked in Manhattan too, so I would get up and I'd go to work and I'd go to grad school at night in Manhattan and then I'd leave Manhattan and I'd be on like public transit for like almost two hours sometimes to get home. So I'm just like in the city at night all the time. And it was impossible for me to not exist in this sort of like, uh, essentially exist in a city like New York as cliche as it is my hometown to, and, and not be like, Oh my God, I am kind of living in a cyberpunk world, right? Like this, I remember one day walking somewhere around my job, like, um, and I was like, just walking and I looked up and it had rained and like the clouds were real low and everybody's just sort of down. And I had like my cell phone playing some kind of music in my headphones, probably like, I don't know, whatever bizarre, like hardcore punk or whatever thing I was listening to. And, and like the, the fog's real low, so the buildings look real tall and like everything's real dirty because Manhattan's just filthy. Um, and I was like, oh my God, this is it. I'm, I'm in a cyberpunk world. Like, of course, no wonder I love this book so much that I read it like about a, every once a year or something, you know, because it it's actually reflecting the world that I'm in and the type of world that I exist in, right, of... of economic disparity and of like kind of just sort of being on the fringes and counterculture and yeah globalization that's i think a factor as we as you said oh yeah like globalization and you know wrecking like in neuromancer there's so much going on in the background like there's the the they talk about like a bizarre like religious cult that that uses like hyper hyper tv signals to cause like riots and like they there's like the gangs you know the gangs and like there's so much going on in the background that it's just an escalated version of what's going on in anybody's world in anybody's modern life and most of us are like yeah that's really that's really wild man but like i kind of just need to sort of get by right yep exactly that that more or less sums it up that that uh, the thing that I literally just learned uh, that was interesting was just that, and I, we've been wanting to do, as I say, an episode about steampunk. And as as you mentioned, um, the fact that William William Gibson is apparently the co-author of uh, the Difference Engine, which I literally did not know until we started I started researching this episode, um, which is pretty wild. Uh, that definitely makes it clear how there's a tie between steampunk and cyberpunk and why it's called steampunk for that matter. I mean, that, that snaps a lot of stuff into place uh, for me. Um, but it is, uh, it is kind of, uh, it's, it's kind of interesting that, so, so he's essentially pioneered two genres, not just one. Um, yeah, except the, the 
I, I would argue that steampunk went even further off the rails from what Gibson and Sterling intended. <laughs> oh, definitely, yeah. It yeah. lost the political uh, aspect almost completely. Yeah. Yeah. Almost completely. Well, and I think we're also going to get into this in, in other episodes, but uh, like there were definitely what you could call steampunk books for some time before that book, for sure. It's just that's the one that got called steampunk. But it, the thing that unites it to me that, that, that is significant is just that it's the punk. I mean, it's, it's kind of obvious, but like reading this and, and doing research on, on Gibson, you, you know, you're struck by how it really is the punk attitude that affected everything. Like that is one of the major defining, uh, elements of Gibson's work. It's just, he is coming from a punk rock perspective, which is to say anti-authoritarian, uh, focusing on, you know, a certain, a cynicism towards structures and control and the way the world is and the status quo. Um, that, and, and, you know, he, he, I'm, I'm eager to read the difference engine, which I have not read yet, uh, to see how that, you know, goes into the steampunk because so very quickly steampunk became, as you say, it just became, Hey, cool clocks on, on things and, and, pipes i i absolutely um oh god i don't want to like go off on a tangent but like and i don't want to waste too much time but god the fact that like yeah like modern i guess quote-unquote modern steampunk is basically just like hey cool clock and it's like colonialism but twee (laughs) or whatever right like whereas like you read the difference engine it's filthy and disgusting everybody's kind of racist everybody's really sexist um it's rife with colonialism and it's, it's just sort of rife with the failures of technology and that it's, so it's very, very cyberpunky in a well, in a way too. And also it probably out of all, and I've read a bunch of steampunk because I'm not immune to just sort of sometimes indulging in garbage. Right. um, Right. I like to turn off my brain sometimes, but you know, the, the, the punk element is, I think is really important because, like, yeah, like, that's why I liked Neuromancer, because I went to hardcore shows and I shaved my head and, right, like, we, you know, everybody who went to these shows was of color, was queer, was poor, we fought a lot, you know, we hated cops and were, you know, anti-authoritarian in what we, in sort of, like, what we wanted to do, and, you know, from there, like... I read this book and I was working the door at punk shows and, you know, doing DIY zine stuff. And that was like the also ironically sort of about the time I started writing as well, too, and publishing. Um, and all of it was always meant to be counterculture. Right. So when I see people just sort of slap punk at the end of some sort of like weird aesthetic that they want to do, I'm like that. I, I hate to be that guy gatekeeping punk rock but that's not very punk rock steampunk <laughs> is not very punk rock yeah which doesn't that make it the most punk rock of all no. i no. swear i'll <laughs> no. leap through the computer and just, <laughs> exactly. just right through the come right through this thing well on that note i hey phil we've uh, ticked off another guest and uh, we'll never be able to have him back <laughs> for this reason our record remains unblemished um, but, um, yeah, okay, so uh, thank you so much for being here, Costa. This this was great. This was absolutely a pleasure to, uh, to hear what you had to say about this. Uh, I'm so glad. I'm really excited to see what everyone thinks of this episode. I think this was really cool. Um, thanks. Thank you for having me. Oh, God, it, it's, it's great. Yeah, great talking to you. Yep. So as the swollen, colonized sun descends barely visible through smog and nanite-choked skies, we reach the end of the line and hastily output to a pirate diskette. We are the super-advanced AI with a soul, Philip Rice, and the technologically-enhanced dolphin, Adam Prosser. Massive props to the elite digital cowboy, Costa Kutsutis, for being here. Uh, producer engineer... Hey. <laughs> producer engineer and mirror shade wearing cyber god alex ross helped write the program and neo new wave experimental electronica virtuoso jack Furick wrote the music uh just a reminder we both have a patreon which helps pay for hosting costs and whatnot and it would be super elite of you to uh subscribe to either of us It'll let you ride the cutting edge of cyberspace and listen to this podcast early time, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, and illustrations and comics, among other things. Just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice 1L or Adam Prosser 2S's or NeverSleepsNetwork.com slash series slash what-mad-universe for the links. 
And you can follow us on Twitter at WMU Podcast or Prankster36 for me or Spear Halfock A for Philip. Uh, Costa, do you want us to give your Twitter handle or do you not want people annoying you? <laughs> yeah, sure. Follow me on Twitter at uh, C O S T A underscore K O U T. That's Costa Coot on Twitter. Um, can I talk about other stuff? Yes, yep. please. Okay, so uh, I actually came out with a book this year called The Go Between. It is available on my website. Uh, Costa K, that's C-O-S-T-A-K dot wordpress.com. It's actually a little sort of cyberpunk mystery about a building that shouldn't exist in a future 15 minutes from now, inspired heavily by my trip to Chicago's O'Hare Airport. Uh, I have a Patreon, too, where I write short fiction, horror, science fiction, fantasy, crime. Um, I have stuff up at my blog, too, but if you go to costak.wordpress.com, there's links to Twitter, Patreon, buying my books, all that other stuff. Please help me pay for coffee and cat food uh, and replacing all the socks with holes that I have in them. I am a very poor college professor. <laughs> very cool. Absolutely. And I do want to remind people, uh, I do have a uh, my uh, occasionally updated Star Trek podcast, Mirror Universe, with Douglas McDonald Norman. Did get a new episode recently, so you might want to look that up and check it out. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, once again, this is What Mad Universe logging off and jacking in. Mm-hmm.